Well, thank you, Beth, for taking care of the, uh, the offering for me. I think it was last year uh, I was teaching, and you were on vacation, and so I had to do the offering, and I had spent all day studying for the service, and then when I got, as soon as I walked up on stage, I realized, oh, I have to do offering too, and I had no idea what I'm supposed to say, so I kind of just panicked and said what Pastor Mike always says on Sunday mornings, because that's what I'm used to, but I didn't know that on Sunday nights, the, the offerings are collected slightly differently, so I, I was standing up here, and I'm like, the ushers are in the aisles with envelopes and pens, and like normally they come down in, in the mornings, but in the evenings they don't do that, so they just looked at me, and then I said, so at any, any point now, the ushers are going to be walking down the aisles, and they're going, no, we don't do that, and Shane's like, they don't do that for Sunday night. So uh, all that to say, uh, having Beth take care of the offerings is very nice, because then I don't have to do it. So... Uh, you guys are already all seated. I was going to make you shake hands again, but I won't do that. I do want to say this. You know, a lot of times when we have guest speakers come and speak, they uh, will have, like, their table in the back with all their stuff. I don't have a table, uh, but who here has an iPhone? Does anyone here have an iPhone? So I did make an app last year called the Prayer App. It's free. If you look my name up in the App Store, Garrett Milovich, you can find it. And basically what the app does, you know, some of you may have seen me post about it on Facebook, but basically it just gives you pre-written prayers that you can pray uh, for all people in any sort of leadership in our country and around the world. You know, we have uh, a president and a presidential cabinet that certainly need a lot of prayer, but we also have 535 senators and congressmen, most of whom we don't even know their names or who they are, that probably never get prayed for. We have Supreme Court justices, there are presidents and kings around the world, there are influential people in the media who could always use our prayers, and so uh, if you're interested in an easy way to find out who those people are uh, and pray for them, uh, the app is available for free for you, so feel free to take a look at that. Uh, why don't we get into the Word? Does that sound good? Okay, if you have your Bibles, why don't you go to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, we're going to read verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to read that again. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You know, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that church should be a lot shorter. Like, we should be able to read a verse like that and then just, you know, applaud, praise God, and then go home, because that's powerful stuff. You know, I think it was like 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, the early church, their church services didn't revolve around messages. They would have, like, the, the, the preacher and the pastor get up. They would teach for maybe five to ten minutes. And then the rest of the service was communion and worship because they would hear God's word and God's word was powerful enough to transform their lives. And then they could all go home. But it was around the time of the Reformation that the, the sermon started to get longer and longer. And the reason was because it was around the time of the Enlightenment when people started to reason uh, more and more. Not that reason is a bad thing, but what they were doing was they were reasoning against God. They were reasoning against his word, and when they would read a scripture like this, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
they would begin to reason and say, well, what does that really mean? What, well, what does it, because you know, it can't mean what it says, so, so how can we interpret this in the modern world to really understand what it means? And they started to explain away what God's word actually meant, which is why the sermons needed to get longer and longer so they could combat all the, uh, the heresy, essentially, against God's word. But you take, a, you take a scripture like this, I'll read it again. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That tells us right there why Jesus came to the earth, to destroy the works of the devil. You know, this is healing school. We're talking about healing, uh, which is essentially God destroying the work of sickness, the work of disease in our lives. That scripture right there alone should be enough for us to realize God's good, God wants good for us, and God has taken care of the devil. And so tonight, you know, there's always the temptation, and every time I teach, I always say this, there's always the temptation when, when I teach at Pastor Mike's pulpit that you want to say something really clever and really smart and really deep and impress everyone. But we don't need to go deep, deep, deep into God's word to realize how good he is. You know, in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. You don't have to dig for a gold nugget. You just walk, and there it is. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're just going to take a walk through a couple chapters of God's word. We're not necessarily going to go super deep and, and figure out what does this actually mean. We're going to take God at his word and see that God is good, that God's word is true, and that God wants good for us. How does that sound? Uh, so we're, we're going to actually read uh, 56 verses in a row, we're going to read a story about an entire day of Jesus' life. We're just going to look at one day of his life. We're going to read through it and kind of examine a couple of things about it. But before we do, I want to read one more scripture. It's Acts chapter 10, verse 38, just to help kind of lay another bit of a groundwork. So let's go to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Again, I, I have a three-year-old son, and so my life consists of finding the easiest way to explain things in the, in the world around us. And I'm convinced that as far as God is concerned, life should be simple. Life should be straightforward. Life should make sense. I think it's us that make things complicated, but God has some basic principles in life. And if we just decide to live uh, and be governed by those simple principles... Life makes, makes a lot more sense. So why don't we look at Acts chapter 10, verse 38. This is Peter preaching, and he says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So let's break that apart. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the, whole, uh, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Who here has been anointed with the Holy Spirit? Who here has been anointed with power? Okay, so so far you're in good company. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good. What did Jesus do? He did good, right? How God, or how Jesus went about doing good, and what did that good look like? And healing. Is healing good or is healing bad? So God went about doing good, healing. How many people did he heal? He healed all the people. He didn't pick and choose and say, well, you need to stay sick longer so I can teach you a really important lesson. He didn't say, well, you need to stay sick longer because you did something really bad like 15 years ago and you still haven't made up for it. He went about healing 
all who were oppressed. Disease is oppression. Sickness is oppression. And where does that oppression come from? From the devil. I can have you come up and preach for me, you know? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Where does sickness come from? Is healing good or bad? How many people does Jesus heal? And why did he do it? For God was with him. Is God with anyone here tonight? Like how, how simple is that, right? Like We just refuted 400 years of heresy with one scripture in five minutes. If we would believe what God's word says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Okay, we've, we've laid a bit of a groundwork, a, a bit of a, a course. We have a bit of understanding about the character of God. So why don't we get into the meat of this message? We're going to go to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And so basically what we're going to do is we're going to read 56 verses in a row. We're going to take minor pauses to, uh, to consider what's happening here. We're not going to look at every single thing, uh, but if you're the kind of person that likes to dig deep into the scripture and do word studies and all those things, a couple of key words that you can study later in this passage uh, would be immediately, fear, begged, and fell. Those are words that, that seem to pop up a lot in these passages, so you can look those things up later. We're in Mark chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 35. And just a reminder, we're taking a look at like about 24 hours of Jesus' life and seeing uh, what exactly that looks like. Verse 35. On that same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over now to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in a boat as he was and other little boats also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? The first thing we're going to see is that when talking about Jesus coming to the earth to destroy the works of the devil, number one, Jesus destroyed destructive forces. Look at this passage that we just read. You know, this is Jesus calming the sea. So consider what's taking place. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. And as we all know, a majority, or at least a, a large number of his disciples, by trade, were fishermen. And they were fishermen who grew up sailing this exact sea. So they probably had spent thousands of days of their lives sailing this exact sea. So whatever's going on with the storm and with the raging sea and everything, you know, it was probably a bit of a big deal. You know, it probably wasn't like a, a small breeze came by and they all freaked out. Like, they understood. They were seasoned sailors. Shady and I uh, and Jack last summer went on vacation to Colorado, and, and Shady thought it would be a good idea in this small town called Granby to rent a canoe and to go out on this canoe. So we, we go out on this canoe, and, uh, and in my thinking, 
you know, boats are like stable, they don't really shake or tip over, things are pretty easy. The guy pushes us out, and I'm like, I'm sure that I heard him laugh as he did it. He pushes us out, and like, like the boat like is pretty decently above like the water line, and it's super windy, and the waves are choppy, and like, no joke, within one minute, I'm thinking, oh dear God, we are gonna drown out in this boat. I mean, it, they have, have you guys been in a canoe before? Like, they have the seat. I'm not sitting on the seat. I'm like in a ball on the ground because I figure if I could get my center of gravity low enough, it'll stabilize the boat. So I'm like, Shane, you need to paddle. I'm stabilizing the boat. Like, and, and I, I didn't, like, we all had life vests, so I knew we weren't going to drown, but I was legitimately preparing for swimming my son to the shore, uh, and, and my, my wife was pregnant, and I'm like, no, so I'll, like, she could probably, like, take care, she's not that pregnant, the baby is like buoyancy, she'll be able to float, you know, to the, I'll get our son, it'll all be good, the boat did not tip, I was able to keep the center of gravity, Shani said that this isn't how it works, but I, I'm convinced, you know, my center of gravity was low enough, and I was like rowing without seeing. I think like we, we crashed into a bush. It, it, was, it was not good. These guys were a lot better at sailing than I, that was my first time in a canoe, by the way, if it wasn't apparent. These guys were better at sailing than me. So for them to be scared, it must have been a heck of a storm. In fact, if you look at the language that's being used here, you know, I, I did some research. Uh, if you look this up in Matthew's gospel, Matthew actually says that this was caused by a great earthquake. It uses the Greek words mega seismus. So it was a major seismic shake that caused this storm. Uh, the word, if you look it up in a lexicon, it means a storm breaking forth from black thunderclouds and furious gusts with floods of rain and throwing everything topsy-turvy. When Aristotle used this word, it meant a whirlwind revolving from below upwards. So basically, the picture that's being painted is this storm was so hectic that there was craziness coming down from the sky, there was craziness coming from the sides, there was craziness coming up. And in the disciples' defense, it says right here in verse 37 that they didn't wake up Jesus until the boat was already filling. So they waited until the boat started to fill up with water before they decided, hey, it's time to wake up Jesus, you know, and Jesus woke up, we read, he says, peace be still. It's, it's two words in the Greek. So he just wakes up, looks at, the, looks at the sea, says two words, and then he turns to his disciples and he goes, guys, why couldn't you take care of this? Like, wh where was your faith? What, what's he say exactly? He says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? The reason that Jesus was able to, to sleep, I was thinking about this. You know, Shady and I, every summer, we drive up for vacation in Oregon. And maybe five years ago, we were driving, and, and I drove, like, the first however many hours. And then Shady switched in the middle of the night. And she's like, honey, get some rest. So I start to sleep. And then you hear that noise and like when you start to veer off the road. And I wake up in a panic. And Shady's like, don't worry. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious. I can do this. But... I couldn't go back to sleep. I was too fearful. She's, she's in the mother's room, so she can't give me dirty looks. Uh, I was too fearful to go back to sleep. Jesus didn't have that problem. Jesus trusted his disciples. He thought that they should be able to take care of anything that takes place on this boat. But alas, they can't handle it, or at least they don't think they can handle it, so they wake him up. Jesus takes care of it with two words, and then he looks at them and says, guys, your faith is the issue. Faith could take care of this. 
And just like that, you know, on the first day, we see that Jesus destroys destructive forces. I love how it ends right here in verse, uh, oh, it's not in this, in this version, it's in Matthew and Luke's. It ends by saying that the disciples marveled at Jesus' authority. Jesus was able to destroy destructive forces that were around him. Let's keep reading. Point number two is going to be Jesus destroyed demonic forces. Starting in chapter five. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often... Uh, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, I wouldn't advise it, but who here has ever seen one of those scary movies about people being like demon-possessed, like The Exorcist or anything? I wouldn't advise it, but you watch those movies and you get the idea that like the devil is the most powerful thing that ever lived and God is unable to stop him, right? There was this one movie where there's this like teenage girl who's demon-possessed and four priests show up and she's so strong that she just throws them all out of the room and then she looks up at the sky and it starts to rain and then the animals go crazy and the barn doors fly open and bugs start to crawl everywhere and you think like, oh my gosh, like... It must be really, really, really difficult to cast out demons. In fact, in Jesus' day, before Jesus started walking around, the Jews did think that it was really, really, really difficult to cast out demons. If you research and study the methods that the Jews would use to cast out demons, it would be things like you'd have like special chants that you would have to recite, and then you would light candles and incense, and then you would, you, oh, I, this is my favorite one. The guy, the, the exorcist guy would be there to cast out the demon, and then he would have a guy behind him for like support that would be like, just in case he got taken out, this other guy would jump in. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and sees a demon-possessed guy and will say one word, you know, hey, be quiet, get out and it's taken care of. That's the reason that everyone marveled when Jesus did those things, because it was so foreign to the way that everyone else took care of the devil. So in this story, we see this picture painted where there's this guy, and he's really strong, and he's angry, and no one can stop him, and he yells, and he screams, and he does all these things. Verse 6, And when that guy saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Jesus wasn't even close by. The guy was like way out of distance. The guy sees Jesus and he runs to him. He falls down and he worships him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. That really puts into perspective who has the power between God and the devil, doesn't it? The devil can maybe make a show, he can maybe yell loud and make lots of noises, but when God shows up on the scene, the devil falls at his feet. The devil can't stand in Jesus' presence. Verse 8, for Jesus said to him, come out, of, come out of this man, unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he, and he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country, now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. 
And at once, I love that, at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now, something that I think can happen is I think that we can get used to bad things. We can get used to the world being broken and just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, that's how it's always been. You know, there's a, there's a story, I believe, uh, you know, if, if, if I'm wrong, don't correct me, Beth, but I think there's a Kenneth Hagin story where there was a woman in a, in a wheelchair and Kenneth Hagin prayed for her to rise up and she started to stand up and she got so afraid of what was happening, she grabbed the wheelchair and pulled herself back into it. That, something like that happened, right? And she pulled herself back into it because she was comfortable being in the chair. She was comfortable being sick. She was comfortable having her life be the way that it had been for so long. There's a man chained up in tombs who screams and yells and breaks chains and attacks people and screams. And everyone in the town had gotten used to it. This, oh, that's, that's crazy Joe. That's what he does. It's normal. It's what we're used to. To the point where when that guy was sitting with clothes, like the guy sitting around naked, they see him with clothes and that's what scares them. The guy isn't screaming and yelling and cutting himself and throwing things. He's sitting there being rational in his right mind with clothes on, remaining calm. And that's what scares them. I think that we need to make sure that we don't get used to things being broken to the point where we don't want them to get better. Uh, there, there was a... Uh, a couple posts on, on Facebook this week. I, I haven't been on Facebook much because uh, I hate movie spoilers and I hadn't seen the new Marvel movie yet. Uh, but I did see something uh, that was posted about, oh, California is so terrible and, and broken that we should leave. And then Beth, in her wisdom, made a comment about, well, that's why we need to be here so that we can fix all the broken that's here. And I think it's easy to see California being run by stupid, stupid people that are doing stupid, stupid things and saying, well, that's just the way California is. But wouldn't the same people that think that politically California is, like the people, the Republicans, not to get political, but Republicans are the ones that are like, well, California is super crazy because it's all Democratic. Ronald Reagan was supposedly the greatest Republican ever, and he was the governor of California. So California hasn't always been bad, the 80s was Ronald Reagan, right? Things don't have to stay bad forever. Things can be bad and then they can get good. But they're not going to get good if the church gets used to things being bad and decides, well, that's just always the way that things are going to be. And then we get afraid when we see California in its right mind and clothed. I'd like it if people in California would wear more clothes. <laughs> We're here to fix California. We're here to fix the United States. We're here to fix the world. Our eternal life is not going to be spent in heaven. We're going to go to heaven for a little bit. Jesus is going to do some housekeeping, and then we're going to come back here. 
God's plan is for the earth and the United States and California to be good places. Let's not be people that get used to the disease and, and the, the demonic and, and the chains and, and the craziness. Let's be people that aren't afraid for things to get better. Amen? Verse 16, And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. So, so they made Jesus fixed the broken guy and they made him leave. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And he got into the boat. Uh, he who, uh, and, when he had gotten, uh, and when he had gotten to the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Verse 19. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Now, if this had taken place today, the healer probably would have sent out a newsletter telling the entire world how wonderful he was for healing the sky. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but look at Jesus' humility. The guy comes to Jesus after being delivered from the devil, and Jesus says, Go tell everyone that God is good. Give God the credit, because God had compassion on you. Jesus doesn't say, well, it's because I'm living here, and for the next three years, things are going to be really great, but once I get out of here, it's gone. He says, no, God delivered you, because God loves you. God is compassionate, and guess what? God never changes. Verse 20, and he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And they all marveled. Point number two, Jesus destroyed demonic forces. And look, this is still like the same day. They got into the boat at night. In the middle of the night, Jesus destroyed the, uh, the destructive forces. He delivered them from the wind and the sea. He gets to the shore. He sees the demon-possessed guy. He destroys the devil's work in his life and delivers him. Now we're going to point three. Jesus destroyed disease. By the way, they all start with Ds, if you haven't noticed. Destructive forces, demonic forces, and point number three, Jesus destroyed disease. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again, by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. What will she do? She will live. Jairus boldly declares a statement of faith. She will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed after him and thronged him. Verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. How did she hear about Jesus? Like, was she watching TBN that day? You know, put the radio to the fish or, or whatever Christians are supposed to listen to? How, how did she hear about Jesus? Someone must have told her, right? But, but we read that for 12 years she was Unclean. She had this flow of blood, which, which meant that she couldn't be 
in public places. So she didn't hear about him by going out to the market and having someone tell her because she wasn't allowed to go to the market because for 12 years she had this, this blood disease. So someone must have come and visited her and told her about the things that Jesus was doing. I mean, we, don't, we don't know who this person was. We don't even know if it was a, a man or a woman. All we know is that someone was willing to go share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus with this poor woman for 12 years, was locked up in her house. Let's be like that person. I mean, like, I know that when we read Mark chapter 5, we want to be, like, we want to have the faith of the woman with the issue of blood, but I think we need to have the mission of the man that went to see the woman with the issue of blood. Because there's a lot of people in our country and a lot of people in the world who have issues of blood. Like, maybe it's different. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's some other disease. But there's plenty of people. And they need people like us, people that know the gospel, to be the ones that tell them about Jesus so they can say, I have heard about Jesus. And that they expect Jesus to deliver them. When she heard about Jesus. She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Now I want to point this out real quick. In verse 30, if, I think if you're reading in the King James Version, version it'll say, uh, that he felt virtue go out of him, right? Does someone have the King James? It says virtue went out of him. In the New King James, it says power went out of him. And, and for a long time, I was always like, why does it say virtue? Virtue is such a dumb word, you know? Like, no one even knows what it means. Like, power is where it's at. Power came out of him. Why doesn't it translate it power? And finally, one day, I decided to look it up and look up what that word virtue or power meant. And it's the Greek word dunamis. And this is what it means. Power residing in a thing because of the virtue of its nature. Power residing in a thing because of the virtue of its nature. What that means is this power was in Jesus because he deserved it. It belonged to him. He had a right to exercise this power, this dunamis, this virtue. And you want to know something really cool? The Bible says that you have that same virtue. You have that same power. You have that same dunamis. In fact, when Alvin was, was, was worshiping God at the end of worship, and he was praying, and he was talking about how God does greater things. He exceeds what we expect. He does all these things that are far beyond what we could ever dream. I thought of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or request, according to the power, the virtue, the dunamis that resides in us. Consider what it says. God is able to do all that we desire or request. But that's not, that's not all it says. It says God is able to do above all that we desire or we request. But it doesn't stop there. God is able to do exceedingly above all that we desire or request. But Paul goes a little bit further. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we desire or request. And he does it according to the power, the virtue, the dunamis that dwells in us because we deserve to have that power because Jesus paid the price for it. If you go to, I think it's Colossians chapter 2, it's either Colossians or Philippians, it says that uh, 
What's it say? It says that we have been conveyed. Uh, I'm going to look this up because it's too good for me to misquote. Colossians chapter 2. Sorry, bear with me for a second. I sure hope it's Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. It says he has qualified us to be partakers. That word qualified is the Greek word merit. What it means is that he has given us the merits that we deserve to be in his kingdom. We deserve to be inheritors of his power and of his light and of his love. There's this thing that we'll say sometimes that like, oh, we don't deserve everything that Jesus has done for us. That's crazy. If Beth writes me a $100 check and says, I just want to bless you, and I go to the bank to deposit The cashier doesn't say, you know, you didn't do anything to earn this. I'd say, shut up, give me my $100. I don't care what you think, it belongs to me. We shouldn't have this attitude, oh, we don't deserve the healing that Jesus paid for us. Hogwash, Jesus gave it to us. He said we deserve it. You know, we can have this fake humility attitude of like, oh, you know, Everything is, you know, unmerited. I don't deserve anything. Like, unmerited. We read in Colossians that he has caused us to merit it. It's not unmerited favor. It's deserved favor because we're in God's kingdom. We're his children, and we get what he gave to us. So forgive my my little diatribe in Colossians chapter 2, going back to Mark chapter 5. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power, virtue, dunamis had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you, are, uh, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told the whole truth. Verse 34, and Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus didn't say, well, you've learned your lesson, so you get the healing. He didn't say, well, you get it, but because you get it, that guy doesn't get it. He said, well, you had faith. You believed that God is good. You believed that God wants good for you. You believed that God could heal you. You believed that God would heal you. Your faith has made you well. Number three, Jesus destroyed disease. So look at what we've seen. This is, I mean, it's really taken place in a, in a number of hours. Jesus calmed the raging seas, the destructive forces. He cast out the demons. He uh, destroyed disease. So things seem to be going on a roll for him. But then he gets thrown a curveball right here. All this great stuff is happening. And then verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking... Some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Well, that's a bummer. Jesus is healing this woman who's been sick for 12 years, and because he's wasting time, this little girl has died. There's no need to trouble the teacher any further. There's nothing he can do about this. But as we're going to see, point number four, Jesus destroyed death. As soon as Jesus heard the word, by the way, I want to encourage you, it's okay to say amen or hallelujah. You know, if I say something good, like I know that like there's different types of churches. Our church is a note-taking church. Pastor Mike says something really good and we go, 
write it down really good. I, I taught a church history class at this one church, and they were a humming church. You would say something like, you know, Jesus is good, and they would say, mm. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I encourage you, take notes and hum, but you can also say, Hallel-, like, if I say something good, say hallelujah, say amen, and if I say something bad, just, just ignore it, you know, just no, no need to let me know about that one, right? Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, that terrible demonic word that the daughter was dead and there's no need to trouble him any further, as soon as Jesus heard that word, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. I love that that John is almost always identified as the brother of James. Like for years, I was identified as the husband of Shaney, and now I'm the father of Jack. (laughs) But James was a cool guy, so I'm sure John didn't mind. And Jesus said, do not be afraid, only believe. He got him back in faith, and he removed all the negative influences from his life, all the voices that would tell him otherwise. And Jesus came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult Uh, And those who wept and wailed loudly. If you read this in Matthew's gospel, it says that the flute players were already there. And you guys may not know this, but in Jewish culture, there were people whose job it was to play the flute at funerals. And there was was even a job, uh, women who would cry when people died. And you were required to have one crier and two flute players whenever someone died. So... Uh, by the time that Jesus gets there, they've already have the, the hired crier and the flute player there. Uh, so they're crying and they're playing the flute. Verse 39, and when Jesus came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, that's what you got to do sometimes. You put them all outside. He took the father and the mother of the child, those that had authority in the child's life, and those who were with him, and he entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kume, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years old. And that's what 12-year-olds should be doing in the middle of the day. And they were overcome with great amazement, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that that something should be given to her to eat. I really like this. So there's all these people outside that are like being paid to cry and play the flute. There's people outside that are ridiculing Jesus because Jesus showed up to help the little girl. Can you like, can you imagine? Jesus shows up to help and everyone's making fun of him. They're all outside still. Jesus is inside. The girl is okay. And rather than saying, go tell everyone the girl's okay, he says, oh, let them stay outside and cry for a little bit. Make the girl a sandwich. I, I like it. I, I find humor in some of the things that Jesus does. But I want to point out something in verse 42. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she, was over, uh, for she was 12 years old, and they were overcome with great amazement. And I think when we read verses like that, overcome with great amazement, we think that they were like, oh, cool, like, that was amazing, right? A little bit more than that. I, I looked this, this up. The word overcome in this verse means to throw into wonderment or to cause someone to be out of their mind. Uh, great is the word mega. It means powerfully affecting the senses. And amazing or amazement uh, is where we get the word ecstatic. It means throwing the mind out of its normal state. In fact, three of the seven times that this word is used in the New Testament, it explicitly means the person passed out when they saw it. 
So when it says that she was, uh, that the people were overcome with great amazement, it's basically saying they were so completely blown away that they fell over, couldn't think clearly, and they couldn't take their eyes off Jesus, and maybe they even passed out. In fact, I, I asked them to get a video clip. Uh, there's a movie that I think kind of demonstrates what they probably did when Jesus raised this girl from the dead. So can we play the video? Foreman's been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is about this thing. What? So, so Jesus is maybe a little bit shorter than a dinosaur, but we should be no less uh, overcome with great amazement when we're in the presence of Jesus. Again, I think it's one of those things that we just get used to, like, oh, we get to be in God's family, we get to be God's kids, we get to go to church, this is great. Like, it's amazing what God does. Pastor Mike was talking about this this morning, like the transformation when you are born again it's mind-boggling. It doesn't make any sense. We shouldn't take it for granted. We should be constantly in the state of like, oh my goodness, God is so amazing. Jesus is so good. Jesus does so much more for me than I could ever even ask for. God does exceedingly, abundantly above all that I could ever hope or request. He has caused me to be merited to be in his kingdom, to receive his inheritance, to be loved by him, just to stand here in the presence of God during worship, should take our breath away. Let's not be people that lose that amazement. Let's not be people that say, oh, we get to be in God's family, that's cool. What's the next big thing? We should constantly be overcome with amazement. We should constantly be speechless. Just come to church, and when we, when we worship as a family, every Sunday morning and on Wednesday nights and on Sunday nights, we shouldn't just go, oh, well, we clap on the two and the four, and, you know, we sing really loud. And then when the, the worship leader says that we're supposed to praise him with our own, like, you know, the worship leader will be like, praise him on your own. And then what do we all do? We all, like, put our hands down and get really quiet because we're self-conscious that we don't want the person next to us to hear him worshiping. And then we, we sing, we get back to, like, the, the verse and we're, like, singing normal. And then on the chorus, our hands get a little bit higher. And then on the bridge, our hands get really high. And, like, we're all just worried about the other people. Like, we're standing in the presence of the king of the universe. Like, like, you know, people are like, like, I got to go to the White House. Like, so what? I get to go hang out with the person that invented everything. The guy that invented existence. That's, that's a slightly better than, you know, getting to meet the Pope or whatever cool thing you got to do this week. Don't be afraid. Only believe. In a matter of maybe 12 hours in this one day of Jesus' life, we've seen that he's overcome 
destructive forces. He's overcome the devil. He's overcome disease. He's even overcome death. And it doesn't even seem like he's broken a sweat. But there's one last thing. We're going to read a little bit more into verse or chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then Jesus went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? That such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not that carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. It says that Jesus couldn't do works of them. It doesn't say that he chose not to because they were being jerks. It says he couldn't. And then it identifies in verse 6 that he couldn't because of their unbelief. And, and usually we read this and we focus on the unbelief and say unbelief is bad and it's what prevents faith and it's what prevents Jesus from working miracles. And that's true. But I want you to notice the source of their unbelief. Verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, that, that woman that made up that story about being impregnated by God? With all those brothers and sisters running around? They had unbelief because they didn't believe that Jesus was the right person. And that prevented them from receiving what Jesus had for them. Now, today, people's unbelief comes from a different source. People today don't think that Jesus isn't the right person. They think that we're not the right people. They say, well, Jesus has the power to heal, but not me, because I've made mistakes, because I've done the wrong thing when I should have done the right thing, because... I have lessons to learn that I haven't learned yet because I go to the wrong church because I made, the mis- I made a mistake because I said that one thing in unbelief that one time. So I'm not the right person. I'm not the person that Jesus is going to heal. He's going to heal other people, but not me. We need to resist that unbelief. We need to resist the unbelief that says that we don't get what Jesus paid for. It says that maybe it works for other people, but it doesn't work for me. Because we see right here that when you have that type of unbelief, when you don't believe that God can heal you because you believe that you're the wrong person, Jesus' hands are tied. There's nothing Jesus can do. Now, we've, we've talked about it on and off throughout the service, but if you're here in this room, well, really, if you're here on this planet, You're the person that Jesus wants to heal. You're the person Jesus wants to to deliver. We read at the very beginning that this was the whole reason that Jesus came to the earth in the first place, so that he could destroy the work of the devil, that he could destroy the work of the devil in your life, that he could destroy the work of the devil in your family's lives, that he could destroy the work of the devil in the person that works with you, that he could destroy the work of the devil in this country, 
that he could destroy the work of the devil on this planet. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And that includes you. That includes what's going on in your life. Whether or not what happens in your life you think is your fault or not, Jesus came to destroy that work of the devil. Now, we, we read through these different points. Jesus destroys destructive forces, demonic forces, disease, and death. And, and we can read that and think, well, that's just nice and dandy. But that was 2,000 years ago, and Jesus isn't here anymore. But remember, when we talked about Jesus destroying the destructive forces, Jesus believed that his disciples could take care of it. It wasn't something that Jesus wanted. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm here to destroy the destructive forces. He said, well, you guys can destroy these destructive forces. You guys can destroy these destructive forces, can't you? It's kind of a tongue twister. I should have thought that one out. When Jesus cast out the demons, he didn't say it was because he was the only person to have these magical demon casting out powers. In fact, he gave that power to his disciples. He sent them out to cast out the works of the devil too. When Jesus triumphed over disease, he gave the credit to the woman's faith. He says it is your faith that has made you well. Go and be healed. And when, just, and when Jesus destroyed the little girl from the dead, he again gave the credit to faith. He said, don't be, a, don't be afraid, only believe. Time and time and time again, we see that Jesus isn't holding on to this power for himself. He came to the earth to provide this power for his people. Which means that you have the power to triumph over destructive forces. You have the power to triumph over demonic forces. You have the power to triumph over disease. And you have the power to triumph over death. So if you're here and you're completely healthy, then that's fantastic. I'm glad that you come. Be like the person that told the woman with the issue of blood about Jesus. Don't sit here in this, in this church building with your notepad and hold on to this truth. But go let people know who need it. If you're here and you have been sick and you've been delivered by God already, then praise the Lord. Be like the man who was delivered from the demons that, that went back to a city and told everyone what God had done for him, that God had had compassion on him. And if you're here and you're sick, then be like the woman with the issue of blood. Say, I will be healed. I have received from God. God is able and willing to perform what he has promised, and I receive his healing in the name of Jesus. And if you look down and it hasn't happened right away, don't be discouraged. That happened to Jesus too. Just keep confessing God's truth. I am healed. I have been healed by the stripes of Jesus. I receive what Jesus has provided for me because I deserve it because it belongs to me. Hold on to that confession and you will receive. I want to finish with this. It's Luke chapter 10, verse 19. We started at the top by talking about Jesus. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents, and scorpions, and over some of the power of the enemy. Oh, oh, thank you, thank you. I must have misread it. And over all the power of the enemy, 
and no thing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. He, he's so nonchalant about it. Like, yeah, the spirits are subject to you. That's not what you should rejoice about. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You're a part of God's kingdom. The healing, that's a byproduct. The deliverance, that's a byproduct. You being in God's family, that's the thing that's exciting. So rejoice. Rejoice because God knows you. Rejoice because you know him. Rejoice because you're in his family. And rejoice because he delivers you from everything that could ever come against you. Amen? Cool. Why doesn't everyone stand on their feet? We're going to pray. God, you are so incredible. You are so good. You are so amazing. You are so mighty. You are so worthy of all of our praise. And God, we love you so much. We are blown away by your goodness and your faithfulness and your character and who you are every single day, God. Wow. Just to know you. What a privilege. Just to be known by you. Oh, God, you are so good to us. You are so good to us, and we thank you that you are faithful to your word. You said that by your stripes we were healed. So for everyone here that has sickness or disease, if it's a a big thing or if it's a small thing like a cough, we rejoice that you are bigger than that cough. We rejoice that you are bigger than cancer. We rejoice that you are bigger than issues of blood. We rejoice that you are bigger than death. No one is beyond hope. No one is beyond your reach. So we rejoice that you have delivered us. We're not waiting for your deliverance. We're not waiting for you to do something miraculous. We rejoice because you have done something miraculous. You have transformed us. You have destroyed the works of the devil. (laughs) That is incredible. We rejoice. Hallelujah. We are delivered. We have been delivered. We have been set free. The devil has no power. The devil can't do anything. (laughs) Wow, that's so incredible. God, thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your healing. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your peace that passes understanding. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. (laughs) God, thank you for everything you've done in our lives. And thank you for everything that you're going to continue to do. Thank you for transforming us more and more into your image. Thank you for your love. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for being a good God. You could have been any kind of God but you chose to be good. You chose to be good to us. And we love you so much. We love you so much, Jesus. We will never cease to be amazed by you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You are so good. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in our lives. We thank you that we have been delivered. And we thank you for the people that will be delivered because of our testimonies. We overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimonies. We thank you for your wonder-working power that as we go out, as you commissioned us, as we lay hands on the sick, they will recover. 
they will recover. You are faithful. You are faithful. And your promises are yes and amen. Yes, yes. yes and amen. Hallelujah. Well, if you agree with that, say amen. amen. And if you don't agree with that, the door is over there. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, always a pleasure. Pastor Mike will be back on Wednesday. So make sure you're here for his not series one-off teachings. They'll be great. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much.